invite you, if you uh, brought your Bibles, to go ahead and open them to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We've been in a series uh, walking through uh, the teaching of Ecclesiastes. It is, it is a teaching from a master teacher. It begins by saying everything is meaningless, absolutely meaningless. And we talked about that word the first few, few weeks. I even had a bubble gun. And meaningless, actually, it just means vapor. And what the teacher is saying is everything between your first breath and your last breath is vapor. It's temporary. And so he is trying to examine the things that happen in this created world between your first and your last breath to look deeply into those things. A couple of weeks ago, we talked even about this idea of eternity. So there are things in this created world, but then there are other things outside of this created world. God. We even played this song, uh, Turn, Turn, Turn. We've talked about the seasons. And last week was, I know, everyone's favorite teaching. We talked about a miserable business. We talked about oppression and envy and toil and how that ties in with love your neighbor. And, and every week, I've given kind of a disclaimer about Ecclesiastes. Every week, I, I, I have said, the master teacher's goal is, is to stir you up. I've said Ecclesiastes is, is a different book than any other writing in the, in the Bible. I mean, profoundly different. And the master teacher isn't going to teach how you think he should, and he's going to contradict himself. He's even going to make broad generalizations and then not qualify or define them. Even last week I said, you know, I've read a couple of different commentaries about last week's teachings, and none of them agreed. If someone walks up to you and says, well, here's what Ecclesiastes is really trying to say. They're lying. They don't know. The master teacher, his, his writing isn't, isn't nice, it's, it's not tidy, and if you're looking for kind of a, a prescription sermon of take two of these and call me in the morning, like that's not how he's working. The hard-packed soil of your life, that's what he wants to get at. The solid bedrock beliefs that you stand on, the master teacher wants to till those up. He wants to toss them up and turn them over. He's, he begins by saying, hey, you know, all this stuff that happens in your life, you know, really it's all meaningless. Right. Are you following? So his writing is disruptive and subversive. His writing is countercultural. And uh, I've been given this kind of disclaimer every week throughout these teachings, but I know you haven't believed me until maybe last week. Uh, and last week, for the first time, you believed me because some of you walked out of last week's teaching going, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, some of you walked out of last week's teaching going, I don't, I don't know if I even agree with that. He made this big statement. He didn't qualify any of it. Is that really what he thinks? Last week's teaching, especially maybe more than, than the previous ones, stirred you up. Challenge those ideas that we've held so steadfastly to. And uh, if you said, hey, I don't agree with that, or I don't, I don't know how I feel about that, or, or I don't even know if I, if I like that, I don't know if Adam's right about that. Honestly, I want to affirm those feelings in you, uh, because that stirred upness is the exact goal of the master teacher. I'm not the master teacher, but the author of Ecclesiastes is. And honestly, last week when I, I knew some people were kind of stirred up with that last week's teaching, and uh, 
when I heard that people were kind of stirred up and there was some talking, oh, I don't know, I feel about, I don't know if I like, I don't know. Um, honestly, inside, I was really glad. I was really glad. I, I, I felt relieved when, uh, when you were stirred up, when there was some, some discontent. I was relieved because last week's teaching stirred me up too. I can, my wife can attest to this. I said, babe, I'm in this teaching, and it's just, oh, it's just like, uh, man, it's so difficult, and I don't know what to do with it. I don't know how to balance this, and I don't know how to say this and not qualify it. And uh, when I heard that, uh, that you were being torn up a little bit, challenged a little bit, I was glad, because I was too. Because all of this in Ecclesiastes is intentional. His purpose is to help us see the world differently. And from his perspective, we can't do that until we stir you up a little bit first. So the question is for us as a church through this week's teaching and through, through all the teachings is what do we do when God's word creates tension in us? What do we do? Scripture even says about itself that it's, uh, the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword, able to separate bone from marrow. Literally, it says scripture is supposed to stab you. It's not a pleasant image, right? So what do we do when scripture pokes at us? What do we do when scripture creates tension in us? What do we do when, when what Scripture says isn't quite in alignment with the way we're acting or believing or behaving or spending or valuing? What do we do? Well, the easy thing to do, the, the easiest thing, and, and Nashville makes that incredibly easy, is to, to find another church somewhere else that will teach you something more comfortable, something more agreeable. And we have those everywhere, right? Uh, we even have massive groups of people that move from church to church seeking out that kind of comforting message of what they already believe and just kind of being affirmed along the way. So, so there's, there's one way of dealing with the tension of Scripture, which is just kind of, uh, I'm going to go to where I'm safe and comfortable and it's easy. Or we can keep going. I love that one of the values here at Aspen Grove Christian Church is that if Scripture says it, we're going to go there. How many of you were here when we taught the Joshua series and there was this whole big long section about putting heads on spikes? Yeah, we went there. And we, we even had a graphic. Like, Scripture's going there. We're going to go there. We're not just going to deal with the parts that, that we like or are comfortable or easy. And, and honestly, that makes my job incredibly difficult as a teacher because I would rather us go to the nice, comfortable, quiet, easy uh, passages too, right? But that's not being honest to the text. And, and, and I know you already know this, and, and I want to I put this out there, though, uh, and maybe it, needs to, maybe it goes without saying, but um, not only am I fallible, not only will I sometimes get it wrong, I definitely get it wrong. And maybe that's, that's uncomfortable for you to, because I'm up here and the lights are on me and I get to have a microphone for that person to say, I get it wrong. Uh, my wife is sitting right here. She'll, uh, she can affirm this with a loud amen and hallelujah. And um, so I I'm, I'm definitely get it wrong. And, and I, would, I would encourage you to uh, struggle with scripture, to wrestle with it. Allow it to do a work on you and, and give your, your teacher as much grace 
as anyone else, because I need grace too. Um, there's not a pastor I know, there's not a preacher I know that can look back at their sermons from five years ago, even maybe even a year ago, and go, yeah, 100% exactly agree, I would have said it exactly the same way. No, it's a process. They're growing, I'm growing, we're growing together. So when a, a scripture creates tension in us, we're not going to shy away. We're just going to keep going. Are you with me? When it gets tough, we're just going to bear down and we're just going to keep going. And what I'm going to encourage you to do is engage the word together. So this is not the best, best chance to engage. Um, I mean, I guess you could say, hey, Adam, totally off there. Um, but um, where it gets tough and where it creates tension Enter into that and enter into that with our shepherds or with, with other teachers or with Clint or with, with anyone. Enter into it with, in, your, in your disciple groups, in your small groups of, hey, you know, he said that and I don't know how I feel about that. Awesome. Awesome. That is a great place. It is in that, it is ex that exact moment that the master teacher is trying to get at. Are you with me? So I invite you if it's creating some kind of tension in you, and today we're going to talk about wealth, so tension alert, it's coming. If it creates some tension, enter into that. Because maybe, just maybe, the Spirit of God is trying to do a work on you. Are you with me? All right. Let's keep going. Today's teaching is about wealth. Ecclesiastes talks a ton about wealth. Uh, who's the wealthiest person you know? Who's the wealthiest person you personally know? Can you think of somebody? Don't point. <laughs> Everyone pull out your W-2s. Um, who's the happiest person you know? Can you think of somebody? Who jumped into your head? Is it fair to say that our culture, our world, our billboards, our commercials would expect the answer to both questions, who's the wealthiest person you know and who's the happiest person you know, is it fair that our culture would expect the answer to be the same person? If someone is wealthy and still manages to somehow be unhappy, would you feel sorry for them? No, <laughs> I don't. Um, you know, at least if someone is, is poor or doesn't have a lot of money, at least they have a reason to kind of sort of be unhappy. But what reason does a wealthy person have to be unhappy? Like, they had their shot. It is this kind of uh, tough or correlation or perceived correlation between wealth and true happiness the teacher is going to address. Remember, everything is meaningless. He's talking about what happens under the sun. Let's talk about wealth. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, the verses 10 through 13. He says, those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings. What are those two words? The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. So what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? Keep going. People who work hard sleep well whether they eat little or much. But the rich seldom get a good night's sleep. There is another serious problem I have seen under the sun. Hoarding riches harms. Let me say that again. Hoarding riches harms the saver. 
All right, so Ecclesiastes is a serious book. It takes, it takes time seriously. It takes life seriously. And it takes true happiness seriously. And here in this first few verses, the master teacher says, Houston, we have a problem. He says, there is a serious, serious problem. And the problem is, the wealthiest person is not necessarily the happiest. I love, uh, you guys remember a couple of months ago, uh, the Powerball was up like over a billion dollars and we were all in here praying. Man, more people in church praying that Sunday than ever before. Um, you know, a billion dollar Powerball, everyone's, woo, you know, we're all making these deals with God. Oh, God, I'll give you half if you just let me. Um, I love what uh, Mark Cuban said, uh, you know, the billionaire owner of the Mavericks, Mark Cuban, um, when the Powerball craziness was, was running around, he said, if you weren't happy the day before you won the lottery, you wouldn't be happy the day either, the day after either. Um, and, and I know what immediately some of you are thinking. It's like, well, I'll try. <laughs> the, the master teacher in Ecclesiastes says that this pursuit of wealth this path to wealth, this path of acquiring wealth isn't going to lead you where you think it is. In fact, this path of wealth is different from a path towards true happiness. He says this path towards wealth, this love of money is actually a kind of disease. It upsets the natural rhythms of life. Even the people on this path, they have a hard time sleeping at night. They've got the biggest bed and the most expensive sheets, but sometimes they have a hard time getting a full night's sleep. Their, their natural rhythms of, of life and contentment have been, have been upset. He even says, the more you have, the more you watch it slip through your fingers. You're on this path to wealth, and you think maybe that'll increase really good, meaningful relationships, but what happens is that your relationships are challenged because people come around you just expecting you to give them stuff. And then now your friendships begin to question every friendship. Well, are they really my friend or are they my friend because of what I have? So it, accepts our, it, it upsets our rhythms of life. It, accepts, it, it, it has the potential at least to upset our relationships. And he goes so far as to say that hoarding riches is like smoking two packs a day. He says hoarding riches is ultimately harmful to your health. It's harmful to the saver. But let's get, it gets worse. Let's keep going. Verses 14 through 17. He says, money is put into risky investments that turn sour and everything is lost. In the end, there is nothing left to pass on to one's children. We all come to the end of our lives as naked and empty handed as on the day we were born. We can't take our riches with us. And this, too, is a very, what's he call it? This is a serious problem. People leave this world no better off than when they came. And all their hard work is for nothing, like working for the wind. Throughout their lives, they live under a cloud, frustrated, discouraged, and angry. Again, the teacher is addressing this very serious problem. 
I think the context stay, stays with this context of this hardworking guy is this guy who's in love with money. And he points out a, a couple of things. Uh, the first I want to illustrate with a story uh, from Jesus in Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12, uh, Jesus is, a, uh, is approached to settle this dispute about wealth and property. And Jesus answers this dispute, this, this call to settle it by telling a story. He says, a rich man had a fertile farm and produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods and I'll sit back retire, say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Ecclesiastes, right? Have you heard that before? Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you, what's the word? You will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked the teacher says in Ecclesiastes, this is a very serious problem. Jesus spends a ton of time talking about wealth and the pursuit of wealth. Maybe the only thing he spends more time talking about is the kingdom of heaven. And what he says is the pursuit of wealth contributes nothing to your future. That's the story Jesus tells. Do you get that? A rich farmer, he has enough. Man, I've got a ton. I'm going to build, I'm going to even build bigger barns. I've done well. I've been successful. I'm going to build bigger barns. And what happens? That very night, lightning strikes. The man dies. What difference did it make in eternity? What difference did it make to his, his future? The pursuit of wealth contributes nothing to your future and not only are you going to leave naked and empty-handed, you're not only going to leave this, remember we're talking about this space between first left, first breath and last breath, not only are you going to leave the exact same way you came, but worse still, your pursuit of wealth is going to rob you of the moments in here. So your pursuit of wealth, not only is it going to add anything to, any, to, to the life outside of this time, but the pursuit of wealth is also going to rob you of the meaningful present moments in time. Look what he says. All your effort and toil to accumulate wealth and riches won't make the needle of the world move even an inch. All your effort and toil to accumulate wealth and riches won't make a dent or a difference in the world. It won't bring anything lasting or meaningful or wholesome into the world. Your legacy... Will be bubkus, zilch, nada, zero. And I know you're you're thinking like I think no. If I had all this wealth, I, all the great things I would do. And he says, be careful of thinking that way, because you're likely to not even make a ripple in the pond. And to make it worse, your life in pursuit of wealth will be characterized by three things. What, remember what they are. The characteristics of a life in pursuit of wealth are frustration, discouragement, and anger. Do you know that person? It's hard to be really, truly happy when you're frustrated, discouraged, and angry all the time. 
Is that you? Um, my wife and I, we were doing our, our taxes. <laughs> Frustrated, discouraged, <laughs> angry. Like that's this what happened. It's, yeah, like, ah, what are we doing here? But there's good news. Verses 18 through 20, and uh, you need to highlight it, mark it, start it, put a smiley face next to it in your Bible because Ecclesiastes... Um, <laughs> Not, not really long on good, encouraging words, and so you need to really hold on to this one. Look what he says in verses 18 through 20. He says, even, though, even so, I've noticed one thing. There's one thing, though. At least that is good. It is good for people to eat, drink, and enjoy their work under the sun during the short life God has given them and to accept their lot in life. And it is a good thing to receive wealth from God and the good health to enjoy it. To enjoy your work, pay attention to this, to enjoy your work and accept your lot in life, this is indeed a, what's the word? To enjoy your work and accept your lot in life, this is indeed a gift from God. Where did we start? We began, to, we began this teaching by talking about the love of money and how meaningless it is to pursue wealth as the source of what? True happiness. And so he holds up true happiness as this ultimate goal, and he says, you know, if true happiness is your goal, wealth is going to take you somewhere different. Your pursuit of wealth is going to take you to a whole different place. And he comes back around and says, but, but you know, if you want true happiness, if, if you want satisfaction and contentment, enjoyment of life, I'll tell you the source of true happiness. He says it's this one thing. True happiness, peace, enjoyment, contentment in life isn't found in the abundance of wealth or the absence of wealth either. So true happiness isn't found in, in the job you love or the job you hate. It isn't found in a lifetime of work or retirement. True happiness, he says, is a gift from God. I like uh, the way Paul describes it in, uh, in Philippians Paul's this great character who's he's been stoned and shipwrecked and whipped and beaten and um, kind of had this huge conversion experience. But look what Paul says about contentment and happiness and life and enjoyment. He says, not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. He says, I, I know how to live on almost nothing and with everything. I, I've learned the secret of living in every situation. What he says, I've learned the secret of life. You know what the secret of life is? Whether it's a full stomach or an empty or, or if, I have, if I have mountains of, of wealth like, uh, um, I don't know, Bill Gates or, or if I have nothing. The secret of life is I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. He says the secret of enjoying, of finding life, of finding true happiness in this space between the moment you're born and the moment you're you're, you, you pass away the moment you breathe your last breath. The secret of finding and enjoying this life doesn't come from anything this life can provide or offer. It comes from God. God has planted 
in each and every one of us. I don't know if you believe this. God has planted in each and every one of us the ability to enjoy life despite its circumstances. Do you believe that? Man, it's hard. I think that is such a good and profound truth. I think that's a truth that our world desperately, desperately needs because even, even this, the sail of my life is constantly blow, being blown to and fro by you know, good days and bad days and ups and downs and all that. And the writer of Ecclesiastes says, no, I want you to remember that planted in you, in your heart, is the ability to be happy. God has given you the ability to be happy despite everything and anything. Despite whether your stomach's full or your stomach's empty. True happiness is a gift from God. And so he sits back and he, he summarizes it in this crazy simple way and he says, so, so eat, drink, and enjoy your lot in life because each day is a gift. So what do you think? Is the, is the teacher exaggerating the danger of the love of money? Is he exaggerating? You know, he says, well, you know, this is a serious problem, but maybe it's not that serious. Right? I, I mean, I, I see a world, uh, I see our culture, and I'd love to, to speak this message. I think this message is super important for Franklin, for, for Nashville, for Brentwood, because I see a, a culture willing to risk it. Well, I know potentially money and the pursuit of money and wealth and all that, potentially it could be really dangerous, but I'm, I'm, I'm surely can't be that bad. I, I'm willing to risk it. And, and I see people struggling and trying and toiling and, and doing all of these things to achieve this goal of true happiness through wealth. And I, and I just, so I wonder, you know, is, the author of Ecclesiastes, is he exaggerating about the danger? Jesus said in relation to that same story we read earlier out of Luke chapter 12, he said um, in verse 15, he said, beware. If Jesus says beware, that means pay attention. He says beware, guard against every kind of greed because life is not measured by how much you own. He goes on to say in verse 21, he says, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God. He says a person is a fool to try to pursue the things that are temporary, to try to pursue the things that are vapor and miss the thing that is, that is already given, available to each and every one of us in Jesus Christ. We are a foolish to pursue the things of this world and to miss the gift that comes from God alone. So let me ask you a deep question. Has happiness, true happiness, eluded you? I, am, I know a lot of Christians 
who kind of uh, have the market cornered on unhappiness. <laughs> um, even go to church to kind of sort of be unhappy sometimes. Have they missed it? Have you? Maybe today, um, I love where this teaching ends. Maybe today you're ready to receive that which only God can give. All right, your job can't make you happy. Your spouse can't make you happy. Your, your kids, your life, your house, your car, your 401k, none of these things can make you happy. But this morning, right now, in this space, God offers you the gift of true happiness. It is found in a life given to him. It is found in a life dependent on him. It's, it's a gift we get through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate that gift and a time of communion. And we have tables set up around the room with the bread and the blood of Christ, which represents these things that are poured out for us because God loved us so much, gave us one and only son so that we would have life and have it to the full to have life and have it to the full, to have true contentment, satisfaction, joy, happiness. To live a life filled with meaning and contentment. I guess maybe a, a good question to end with is, uh, are you ready for the happiest person you know to be you? Let's pray together. Father God, I, I, love, I love this teaching and I love, where it, I love where it ends and I love the incredible promise that, that comes with us, with it. Uh, this, this promise of joy and contentment and, and happiness. And uh, Father God, I think that is such a good and affirming thing. That's, I see that happening in a relationship with you where we're constantly shown how much we're loved and, and being affirmed. And, and it becomes this powerful force that, that operates despite all the circumstances of our world. In fact, everything that happens good and bad just kind of bounces off of us because we are centered in such a different, different world, a different head space, a different, a different heart space. And so, Father God, I, I pray for us uh, that, that you would forgive us for our moments of unhappiness. Father God, if, if we believe the truth of your word and, and what we've received in your son, Jesus Christ, then what, do, what do we as Christians have to be unhappy about? God, we confess to you, man. We've, we've been grouchy and cranky sometimes. We've, uh, instead of living a life characterized by love and joy of the incredible gift we've received in your son Jesus, too often, God, too often for me, Father God, I confess, too often I've been frustrated and discouraged and angry. Father God, forgive us for, for trying to, to find meaningful existence in this, in this temporary space. But Father God, let us turn to you Right now, Father God, I, I, I pray that this, this gift of happiness and joy and love and contentment would land heavily on every heart in here. That they would know the, the wealth and the beauty of the gift you offer. Father God, maybe this morning it's time for... Uh, Placing on people's hearts, God, is the desire to get baptized, to give their life to you, to, to enter into this gift. God, I pray for that. I pray for that for our, for our world, for our culture, for our community. And Father God, I pray that you would compel us to, to move out of these doors as happy people, as people who have received the gift. 
Father God, and let that, uh, what, if, what if our witness to this community, to, to Franklin and Brentwood and Nashville and East Nashville, Father God, help our witness to be a witness of happiness, of joy, of contentment, of satisfaction, in a world desperate, hungry, clawing for it in every way, shape, and form. Father God, let, them introduce the, let us introduce that world to this gift, to the one thing that they've been searching for. Father God, we love you. Thank you so much for your son, Jesus, and uh, for his incredible sacrifice for us. Be with us as we enter into this time of communion. Open us. uh, Let your word pierce us in the places it needs to. We love you, Father, and in your son, Jesus' name, everyone together says, amen.